following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. I wanted to start this morning by talking to you about an article, short article that I wrote, and it's called A Terminology Issue, The Cost of Discipleship. The cost of discipleship. Let's go to Luke 9:57, if you would please, and see if we can ferret out what I was thinking about when I was working on this. Luke 9:57. We were looking at this parallel passage uh, in Matthew, and it says there in Luke 9:57, "Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go.'" And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. You go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So, I, uh, when I was reading that, I came to the title in my notes, in my, my, my reference Bible here, The Cost of Discipleship. And it made me think of something that I wanted to bring to your attention and just have you uh, think briefly with me about this morning. I have some other material here this morning as well, but to start with this. Uh, let me uh, also look in Luke You don't have to turn there, but Luke uh, 14. Oh, I think we're not going to find what you might be. Uh, It's it's actually uh, another heading issue. In Luke uh, 14, verse 25, the heading in that section says, Leaving all to follow Christ. And I'll read that. It says, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, this is Luke 14, 26 now, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life, also he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, what am I getting at here? Um, Is salvation free or costly? Stinker. (laughs) Yeah, Tim answers yes. Is discipleship free or costly? What do these texts say? Is it free or is it costly? Count the cost, not count the freeness. (laughs) So we have, uh, what we have here going on is that in what I'm going to call sloppy 
theological parlance, people will say, salvation is free, but discipleship is costly. Therefore, salvation does not equal discipleship. You with me? Is that logical? Did you say it's creepy? Oh, repeat. Oh, repeat. Salvation. I don't. This is not me. Okay, but this is super common. Salvation is free. Discipleship is costly. Therefore, salvation, because it's free, is different than discipleship, because it's not free. Something that's free cannot be the same thing as something that's not free. The logic seems to be impeccable, but it's not biblical. Okay? It's not biblical. And I want to think about that with you. When you talk about the terminology in terms of cost, you get yourself all turned around like a dog chasing his tail because you're thinking incorrectly. Salvation and the Christian life are never to be thought of in monetary terms. We think of them or illustrate them in monetary terms because that's kind of handy to do sometimes. And there is truth in you know, the statement that salvation is free. I've probably said it myself many a time. It is in the sense that you can't do anything to achieve it. You can't do anything to earn it. You can't pay anything to buy it. Salvation is free. But then on the other hand, I'm always quick to remember that salvation, although it's freely obtainable by those who believe, it was not freely achievable by the one who achieved it, is it? It was excessively costly to the Lord Jesus to buy our salvation, if you will, to give himself as a ransom, to again use financial terms, to make himself an ethical payment for our iniquities. Exceedingly costly. What was the cost? His whole life, his death, suffering and pain like you can't believe. And that doesn't even count the wrath of God that only he ever experienced in full measure. No one else has ever experienced the wrath of God in full measure like Jesus Christ has on the cross. You think of that. So we're just dealing with the salvation side here, and we're saying, yeah, free. Salvation is free, but it's costly for the one who made it offered freely to us who receive it by faith because that's the only condition to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But when you say it's free or it's without cost, salvation is free, you get yourself confused when you then turn to the topic of discipleship because even though, and here's really where I can kind of untie this conundrum. I'll just do it for you now to save getting to it at the end, and hopefully it'll help it be more clear. 
the, the issue of salvation being free means, more precisely, that you can have it without earning it. You can, uh, you can obtain it without paying for it. That says nothing, that obtaining of it, says nothing about the implications of it once you have it. So when somebody says salvation is free, they're saying it's freely obtainable. But when they're saying discipleship is costly, and thus it's different, See, this is the whole thing about people who make a difference between salvation and discipleship. We talked about this, what, a time or two ago, didn't we? Well, I guess it's been a few weeks since we had this, uh, this session because Brother James taught it for a couple of weeks. But they're saying those are two different things. There are people who are saved but aren't disciples because one is free and the other is not. But remember, salvation is free to obtain. Discipleship Is discipleship costly to obtain? No, it's costly to live in. So free is the price of admission, but costly is the ongoing life. So let me just finish the thought and say it one more time, a different, slightly different way. So when somebody says salvation is free, discipleship is costly, therefore they're different, they're changing the meaning of the free and cost in, in one millisecond. As they say the one, they change the meaning to the other one, and they're tricking you into thinking that that is impeccable logic. It's not impeccable logic, okay? Free to obtain implications that are in your life that are potentially costly, okay? Tim, you have a comment or a question. Yeah, would the, uh, would the bridge between the two be sanctification? Uh, the qu- so, yeah, everybody can hear the question. Is the bridge between the two sanctification? No, I think, I think, I think the, a better illustration would be to say the life that you enter into upon free salvation is sanctification. That that disciple that cost that costliness of discipleship is has to do with sanctification um, not entirely but a lot of it does good question okay some of you are not looking like you're picking up what i'm setting down on the table here So the statement that Ann made was uh, from our former pastor who said that there are a lot of people who want to be saved, but they don't want to be sanctified. The problem with that is that God doesn't do one and not the other. He doesn't sanctify without saving, and he doesn't save without sanctifying. They come together as a package. They're integrally related. Just take, just give it, just take an illustration. Think of one. Uh, the re- and, and let me back up and say, what's the reason for this illustration or this whole problem? The reason is because we live in a soft society. We live in an easy society. It's easy here to be a Christian. Move yourself to Yemen in your mind. Struggle through the decision as a person growing up in a Muslim home 
I've heard of Jesus and I know that my sins need to be forgiven and he is uh, the only way that I can be cleansed. And, but if I decide to follow him, I can have salvation for free. I really can. But I'm going to lose my mother and my father and my brothers and my sisters and my society and maybe my job and maybe my life. We don't have those decisions. So we can sit here in our American lazy boy chair, pull the lever, put the feet way up, and we can say, yeah, I can be believer, but I don't have to be sanctified. I can be a believer for free. But when it comes to this cost stuff of discipleship, don't talk to me about that. Just fill my ice water, please, you know. It's a sad reality. We live in an easy, we have it easy. We're afraid to do the littlest things for Christ. Not, you know, so what I'm getting at here, let's ask ourselves the question, is the term then cost the best way or the best word to use in this context? And my answer is no. As I was reading this stuff in Luke 9 and seeing those headings, I said, you know, those headings have caused us no end of confusion. I think the better terminology to use than cost is the difficulty of discipleship. The difficulty of discipleship. Precision in terminology is important. Sloppy use of terms is both a source of sloppy thinking and a cause of sloppy thinking. So I think the term cost is used in popular parlance is used in a very imprecise way. Granted, Jesus uses the term cost in an illustration about building a tower in which it is obviously necessary to make a cost estimate before beginning construction. We understand that, right? And a cost estimate. Because of the King James Version translation, this came over to a discussion of discipleship as, here's the phrase, counting the cost. Forever in English now, that phrase is stuck, counting the cost. This, in turn, creates a challenge for those who emphasize that salvation is free. They reason that since discipleship costs and salvation is free, therefore the two concepts have to be different. This leads to the not all Christians are disciples theology. They suggest that salvation and discipleship are two different things. Some Christians are believers, they say, and some are believers and disciples. The thought progression from cost to salvation is not the same as discipleship, what we've been talking about here, explained uh, uh, just now, comes about because of a sloppy conflation of two ideas. The first is the idea of monetary cost terminology from an illustration of a building project. What is the Lord saying when he's talking about this building project? When he says that the building is going to cost to build, and you've got to estimate that cost, what he's saying in terms of of the discipleship life is that deciding to be a follower of Christ is going to have its difficulties attached to it, right? And you need to think, are you up for those difficulties? Are you really in it? Okay, so... The second idea is the idea that salvation is free of, in terms of doing any works to earn it. 
Okay, so the illustration of cost in a building project and the freeness of salvation in terms of earning it, when you equate the first idea with the second, you're doing this meaning transfer or meaning change from the one to the other that I said that happened in that millisecond between the statements, salvation is free, discipleship is costly. You're changing the meaning out from under the speaker. Instead, we need to recognize that the illustration of building is like, but not the same, it's like the Christian reality it illustrates. So you decide to build a tower. You need to think about the implications of that. Do you have the wherewithal to complete it? Similarly, you're pondering the decision to believe in Jesus. You have to consider whether you're up for the difficulties that will come after you believe in him. The Lord said in another parable, cast a seed on four different types of soil. And one of those soils, well, three of those soils did not result in any fruit, did they? One soil resulted in several different amounts of fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold. But some of those other soils were like, you know, the seed was gobbled up, uh, it was, some of it was on rocks, and so it grew up, didn't have any depth of earth. Uh, and some was among the thorns, so when it grew up, but then, you know, the cares of riches and the deceitfulness of, of things in life choked it out. The difficulties of life came, and it just choked it, and it showed that it wasn't real. So you take the illustration of cost to build too far if you think like this. Well, since I have to gather all the money and materials and plans and laborers in order to build a tower before I begin... That must mean I have to do all kinds of work and make all kinds of commitments in order to begin the Christian life. That's not true, is it? No, it's not. The tendency of the human brain to make this connection because of the semantic nearness of cost and freeness leads me to believe that the cost terminology should not appear in the headings in our study Bibles. Instead, our headings should be the difficulty of discipleship. So that helps us to avoid the transfer of ideas from the monetary realm to the spiritual realm. And this fits perfectly with the notion that salvation is not earned by works or anything else. And it also works because being a saved person is not going to be a cakewalk in this life. So if you're not a Christian, as you ponder the decision to believe in Christ, you need to think, Christ offers forgiveness and eternal life through simple, repentant faith. That's true. It's simple. But the transformation that comes over you will be so radical that you won't be like what you were before. Your relationship with everything and everyone will be totally different. You will run into difficulties along the way that you do not experience presently. Is that the path that you are willing to endure? That is the Christian life. The difficulty of discipleship offers no contradiction with the free offer of salvation. Jesus will save you. He will cleanse you. He will wash you. He will give you spiritual life. But your life after that moment will be entirely different. It is not that salvation is obtained at a cost. Rather, the Christian life after you begin to follow Christ will be difficult, but it will be blessed. Okay? It will be blessed. So I don't know if you followed all of that, but I think that that's an important 
distinction and kind of thought process. Don't let somebody just steamroll you with salvation is free, so I may or may not decide to become a disciple because that's costly. That's not how Jesus presents it, is it? It's all or nothing. You're either in or you're not in. And you get in freely, but the changes that you'll experience are radical changes, and they will have difficulties associated with them. That's what the Lord's saying. You up for it? That's what counting the cost illustrates. Are you up for it? Well, so Becky's question is, is, is... she doesn't think this is brought up whenever the gospel is shared. Well, the Lord's bringing it up here, isn't he? Yeah, the Lord does bring it up here. The reason we don't bring it up is because we have the lazy boy Christianity. We don't want people to feel like when they start the Christian life, they're going to start and it's going to be, have some difficulties associated with it. We want them to feel like, look, you can sit in the lazy boy chair next to me and we can enjoy this thing together all the way to heaven. It's almost a form of the prosperity gospel, isn't it? What it is, is American evangelicalism. What is that? that, that uh, there was a series that came out recently on some television program. What was it? American gospel? Uh, there's an American form of evangelicalism, which teaches this kind of stuff, that, that discipleship's optional, that the difficulties, they sh- there really aren't that many difficulties. In fact, there are no difficulties. Your life will prosper. Well, where does the Bible teach that? Prosper in heaven doesn't say it's going to prosper here. Okay, so the reason, and, and another motivational reason why we don't share this is because we don't want to cut the chances of us being successful in our evangelism. But maybe we're not successful in our evangelism because we're not giving the true evangel. We have to be faithful to the true evangel, to the true good news. Okay? We don't, you cannot, for a child nor for an adult, Water down the gospel so much to make it acceptable to people because it's not people who wisen up enough on their own, stand up on their own two hind legs, so to speak, and say, yeah, I got that. I figured it all out now. What, what happens when somebody gets saved? God works in their heart to bring them to a point of salvation and they receive the true gospel regardless of the cost that it will be to them. Some of the costs may be uh, minor. Some of the costs are going to be natural. You know, you're not going to be able to do some of the same things that you did before. Hang with the same people that you hung with before. Do the same sins that you did before. Those are costs. Those are Uh, if you will, costs, uh, difficulties. Uh, Indulge in the same addictions that you did before. You're not going to be able to do that. You have difficulty now fighting the battle against sin, and it won't be easy. Okay, any other questions or comments on that? Yes, sir.
Could you give him the microphone? I want everybody to be able to hear this. Ben is making a very good point that salvation is not merely from punishment. Yes. So when I share the gospel, just I didn't used to do this, but an improvement on my part is um, I emphasize that we're, it's, salvation isn't merely from the punishment of sin. It's from sin itself. So um, uh, this idea that you, you, you know you can just receive salvation and then you, you're under grace you can do whatever you want and sin as much as you want and you don't owe God anything is baloney and um, I, I understand why I could accidentally be taught by genuine Christians but if they really understand what they're teaching when they teach that they, they would realize it's a false gospel um, that the separating salvation from sin from salvation from punishment. You can't separate. It, it's salvation from both. Um, it's because yeah. sin causes punishment. Sin and its liability to punishment are integrally related. They can't be split. Yeah, so Go on, Ben. You need to understand it's not only the punishment that is bad because God is a just God and he's justly angry at our sin, and th therefore it's also the sin that it's bad. So a true repentant person is going to, repentance means you, you come to believe sin is bad. You want to be saved from it. And uh, incidentally, it says, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you were bought at a price, therefore glorify your body God, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So when we're talking about the price we pay, really, once we're saved, we owe God a huge debt we can never, ever pay back. And he owns us, and so whatever we're giving him is not meritorious. As it barely puts a dent into what we owe him. <laughs> Okay, Ben, that is a very good point. Thank you for that. If this has caused you to think this morning, then I thank God. That's what the design was, <clears throat> to cause us to think. And I trust others uh, as well who will listen or who are online. Uh, think about this. I'm convinced that this is a very important topic for us to think through, introduced by this idea of the terminology of cost, but it gets down to what is the real gospel? What is the true gospel of Jesus Christ? And um, how is it that God transforms us? What is he trying to do with us? Let me spend a couple of moments to um, clean up uh, one other topic that we had worked on, and that was in the theology of the cross. I had not finished the doctrine of substitution. And this is a marvelous doctrine which is in part of the is part of the doctrine of the atonement, the overarching word that remember I said as we use it in theology, as it refers to the uh, the whole doctrine of salvation. You probably heard it said that Jesus died on the cross so that you would not have to. Right now that expresses a truth, but it's technically not completely correct for. If you're unsaved, you don't die on a cross, right? If 
you're saved, you will not have to die. And it's a, it's a nice thought. It's a good thought. And here's really what it is, a shorthand of saying something even more powerful. Jesus died on a cross so that you would not have to die the eternal second death in the lake of fire. That's what we're really saying when we say that. Jesus died on the cross so that you would not have to die the second death in the lake of fire. This is the doctrine of substitution. Him for you. He in your place. In my place he stood, condemned, didn't he? Despite the fact that God will not justify the wicked, okay, remember that from the Old Testament, will God justify wicked people? No, it doesn't allow for that. In criminal law, it certainly doesn't allow for that, and I'll say something about that in a moment. But despite that, he did sovereignly arrange for an exception to the rule. The exception is that God will accept a suitable substitute for the sinner. The suitable substitute, it's not an animal, because an animal is not of the same value as a human. The suitable substitute is not an angel, because the angel is not the same thing as a human. The suitable substitute is not another regular man or person, because they're stained with sin. So... The suitable substitute has to be someone else. And it has to be a man who is sinless, who can pay the infinite penalty of the infinite demerit of sin. That one and only Savior is the man, Jesus Christ. He is the only one, the only mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There is no other mediator, no other angel, animal, human, or other th- created thing that can be a substitute, an intermediary, a replacement, a substitute for us. Now, one objection to the sacrifice of Christ is based on this very idea that God will not justify wicked people. They say, because Leviticus uh, 23 and Deuteronomy 25 says, God does not and you shall not justify the wicked, that means that for all eternity, in all cases, that no substitution can ever occur. You have to deal with your own sin. Day of Atonement comes, the Jews each have to deal with their own sin. Because God will not justify the wicked, he will not allow somebody else to be a justifier in your place. You with me? That, If that were an unbending reality, then we would be in a world of trouble, wouldn't we? If there was no substitute allowed, here's the answer. That objection incorrectly uses texts in the Bible that that refer to criminal activity. Criminal activity against the state to say that it's impossible for God to justify sinners in their spiritual relationship to, to the Lord. So it's saying criminal has done a a bad thing against the people, against the state. Of course, that person, you can't have a substitute for that person. That person has to pay the penalty for their crime, right? They've murdered, they have to get killed. They've stolen, they have to make restitution. They themselves. But in the spiritual realm, God does permit 
a substitute to be made. And how do we know that? Well, Isaiah 53.10 tells us that he, I'll just turn there so I can read it to you, but I have it off the top of my head. It says in Isaiah 53.10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin... He made his soul an offering for sin. Okay? He took the sin upon himself. Furthermore, not only did the Messiah, the servant, become a substitute for sin, he became an offering for sin. In other words, he somehow stood in the place of sinners. Furthermore, the whole idea of Old Testament sacrifice points to the notion of substitution. For a thousand years... God used animal sacrifices to teach the people of Israel. You take your sin and you put it on the head of that animal and then you cut that animal's throat and you pour out its blood and you burn that animal on the altar as your substitute. And there is the substitute goat and there was the scapegoat. For a thousand, a thousand years, more than a thousand, the Lord used, in fact, thousands of years, way back from even Noah and before. He used the notion of animal sacrifice to teach the doctrine of substitution. Thank God for the doctrine of substitution. But he used that teaching for all those years to get us over the hump of real, to realize a substitute is possible in this case who gave himself a ransom for all. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Galatians 1.4, he gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from the present evil age. Romans 4.25, he was delivered up because of our offenses. Titus 2.14, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. And finally, Galatians 2.20, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. For all, for many, for our sins, for us, for me. Substitution. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to know this truth that Jesus died for our sins. And if we confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts that God, you have raised him from the dead, we would be saved. This is a wonderful truth. We thank you, Lord, that he took the demerit of our sins upon him. He took the punishment of our sins upon him. He took the pain of our sins upon him upon himself, 
and bore them in his body on that tree. Thank you for that, Lord. We exalt him. He is the one who is to be worshipped. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.